Hello, and welcome to the Rockefeller Center's podcast, Rocky Talk. My name is Ben Bogley, and I'm a 22 at Dartmouth. Today, I'm excited to be joined by Simon Perkins and Bill McLaughlin of Orbis, a family-owned and operated outdoor retailer that has specialized in fly fishing gear, among other outdoor activities, since 1856. Simon is the current president of Orbis and is a champion of broader accessibility to fly fishing in the outdoors through Orvis's Breaking Barriers Awards, the 50-50 on the Water Initiative, and the Angling for All Pledge, and is an impassioned advocate for conservation initiatives like those in Bristol Bay, Alaska, and the Florida Everglades. Bill, meanwhile, came out of retirement to serve as president and then CEO of Orvis from 2015 to 2020. While there, he instituted a new approach for strategic thinking for the company, focusing on leveraging competitive advantages, category alignment, and ultimately helping the customer better understand the why Orvis value proposition. Bill was also a Dartmouth class of 1978 and a Tuck class of 1981. Simon, Bill, it's an honor to have both of you with us today, and I just wanted to say that I am from Colorado and I've never been fly fishing, so for purely selfish purposes, I am very excited to hear from both of you so I can potentially pick up the hobby when I'm back there this summer. Uh, with all that said, let's get into the questions. So, first of all, for audience members who might not know a lot about Orvis, could you both share a bit more of the company's history? Yeah, you want me to take that? Yeah, why don't you start and I'll fill in. Okay, so um, it's a 160-year-old company. It started in the 1850s. It was started by a man named Charles F. Orvis who who loved fly fishing. It made he it brought him happiness. Um, it it made his life better, and he wanted to figure out how to bring that to others, and did so by first off manufacturing fly rods, and then flies and and other things that came with that. And if you fast forward. Um, I guess a century. Um, my grandfather, Lee Perkins, bought the company in the 1960s, in 1965. Um, and he pretty quickly started things like schools to help introduce the sport to more people and, and other things like that. And he also was the one, he, it was during his time that Orvis started giving 5% of, of profits to protecting nature and, and really kind of giving back uh, that that being a corporate priority, giving back. Um, my father and my uncle took over running the company in the in the early '90s. My 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 dad was president and CEO. My uncle was vice chairman, um, and they built off of a lot of those things, making trying to figure out how to make the sport more accessible, free fly fishing classes, stuff like that, um, as well as inter- bringing customers into um, to sort of the charitable giving to protecting nature where Orvis would match customer grants. Customers wanted to kind of put some skin in the game and, and needed a trusted resource to kind of guide that. And Orvis was that and Orvis would match it. So it was really kind of bringing customers into that community of, of giving back and protecting, protecting the resource. Um, and then, um, not to speak for Bill, but Bill came in, what, what year did you 2015. 2015. Bill was the first um, non-family leader of the company, um, and I'll let you speak for yourself. But was there for five years, and then, um, and then I took over as president just after just after the pandemic hit. Yeah, and I'd had a 40-year career in consumer products. Um, love watching people interact with the product and what they enjoy and where their opportunities are to improve. Um, when I had an opportunity, I had retired 
uh, and then had this opportunity to look at Orvis and was impressed by um, the purpose, which is a, it's a greater cause that they're working on improving people's lives through um, the wonders and connecting them with the wonders of nature. Um, I was impressed by the potential. Uh, people on the, at the company were, um, had much bigger um, vision of what could be uh, of Enorvis, and then the people were just terrific. So in 2015, my wife and I agreed to move to southern Vermont and uh, work with the team um, to develop the business strategies to restore growth and uh, spent time developing the team and uh, and Simon and his um, preparing him to take over and and pretty much on cue five years five years later um, we were able to make that transition even in the midst of uh, COVID just launching at that point and Simon and his team have done a terrific job uh, leading through that. That's all great to hear, and that was an excellent summary. And something that I think both of you have touched on now is that Orvis is very much focused on conscious capitalism. It's a brand with a mission, that is to encourage more outdoor recreation and also to protect the environment. And so you mentioned that Orvis has this initiative where it donates 5% of its profits to environmental causes. And I was wondering if you could both talk a bit more about how exactly um, that real commitment to conservation and advocacy began to emerge at Orvis. And, you know, with many companies today uh, saying that they have, you know, these socially driven missions um, and you guys being ahead of the curve, uh, what lessons does Orvis have for, um, you know, other businesses as a whole? Yeah. No, it's a, it's a, it's a great question. Um, And it's kind of interesting, you know, what, once, when this, when, when the idea of purpose-led companies started becoming more of a thing, you heard about it more and more. It was something I found really confusing because I, I wasn't really sure what it meant, and I had people who were smarter than me internally say, "Well, it's, it's just, it's, it's because that's what Orvis has done all along. Like, it, it, as far as, as far as a, a, a purpose-driven sort of direction for the company, it's, it's kind of always been there, and I think that's one of the benefits to having a to being a part of a family company is you can have that long-term view and really ask yourself, why are we doing things? And so what's interesting is, you know, growing up and, you know, I, I was, some of this I took for granted as a lot of kids do when they're talking about the stuff that their grandparents or parents are involved in. Um, but but I, I definitely heard and was conditioned by it. There were a lot of examples of Orvis doing certain things because it was the right thing to do. I heard, I heard, my grandfather mentioned that a number of times, whether it was, again, you know, giving back to the natural resource or how to um, make the sport more accessible or even internal culture. How do you how do you how do you treat and how do you treat customers? How do you treat employees? It was something that I heard my um, my my dad and my uncle talk a lot about. There's a there's a phrase that still goes around that, that that's still repeated within the company as far as, you know, if. if we are going to benefit from the use of our natural resources. We must be willing to protect them. It's yeah. it's a phrase my father coined, but it, and it was always kind of it, 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 yes, we are a business. We're looking we're looking to be a successful business and to grow. Um, 
but there's a right way of doing it. And, and that, and we're really committed to that. And what's really interesting for me is when, when Bill came in, I think, again, not to speak for you, but this idea of, of, of seeing some of the ingredients of that, that were there and taking this ethos of this is the right way to do things, or it's the right thing to do, take that ethos and really have it become the foundation of a, of a corporate strategy that can lead toward growth and therefore lead to more reinvestment into doing more good, if you will, but, but really having it become a strategy, both externally and also internally. Um, it was, you know, Bill's, Bill's chapter, and we almost made, we, we might've needed someone from the outside to come in. Sometimes when you're so close to something, you have blind spots. Um, but have, having Bill really show us everything that was right there that really could be built into a, 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 an exciting long-term strategy for growth. I don't know if you'd add anything to yeah, that. Yeah, I, I, I think well, you say the, the, the two things I would just circle back and highlight is one is the uh, authenticity of it. Uh, as Simon said, this was handed down through generations of, of, of values. Yeah. And uh, and a lot of people talk about it. These guys walk the talk and really um, lead by example. And uh, it's never even in question, really. Uh, their commitment is so deep, deep to it. And the second thing I would just circle back on is that um, it it can be a real growth driver. As Simon said, one of the uh, where we were is we were doing a lot of things individually very well, but by putting it all together into a strategy that worked uh, and, and the whole company could get behind and, and uh, make decisions around really helped uh, launch the growth curve of the company. Um, and and that's, that's a key point. And Bill really helped. I remember when he first came, um, you know, when, to Orvis, if, if people would ask us, what does Orvis do? Sometimes our, our elevator speech would take 15 minutes to try to explain it. And it was all really interesting and meaningful. And like Bill said, authentic, but sometimes it was hard to share that story. And, and Bill really helped us understand the importance and then how to make that much simpler so that it can impact and engage that many more people. And, and the timing has been interesting, right? Because especially as of late, you're seeing more and more customers either asking or sometimes demanding to understand what what do you as a company believe in what's your belief system and also more and more employees are asking that as well and so the timing was really helpful because we put a lot of work into trying to to simplify around our, our vision to inspire the world to love the adventure and wonder in nature and, and what does that mean and, and how does orvis bring that value to to many externally internally and it was just it was a really helpful practice that he that he took us through yeah no that's very interesting thanks to you both for sharing that and i want to get into the ways in which you both live the orvis brand to some extent but i first have a more in the weeds question which is um, orvis obviously manufactures lots of clothing and i'm wondering if there's anything in fly fishing rods and many other things and i guess i'm wondering if there's anything in your production processes that might distinguish Orvis from, say, any other standard clothing line, which might have practices that aren't as environmentally friendly, um, that That's sort of thing. And so yeah. I'd speak to that, and I'd really appreciate it. Well, it's, it's a great question because one's supply chain is one of the most impactful things that a company can own as far as 
being purpose-led, whether it's environmental, um, whether it's um, social. And so it's, it's something we put a lot of focus on. I mean, one thing we benefit from is the fact that um, we make the vast majority of our fly rods right here in Manchester, Vermont, and a lot of our fly reels just over the border in New Hampshire. And so, you know, when, when you're vertical in that regard and you can, you, you own a big part of the man, manufacturing process, um, you, you have not only the control, but you also have the transparency. You can really understand how and why you do certain things. Um, where it gets a little trickier is when you have others manufacturing stuff for you. But this is, again, this is this is a huge part of what so many companies are really investing time and energy in is to the transparency, where and how do you manufacture stuff. It's not only important from a sustainability standpoint, it's also important as far as um, mitigating risk, right? You, you, you need a, you need to, you need a diverse approach as to where you manufacture and why and who are you doing business with and what are their practices and what are their belief systems. It's, it's becoming, it, I think, I think I can generalize and say it used to be um, the focus because it was the right thing to do. Now it's there, there's critical advantages to understanding who your partners are, why, what are their practices? Why are their practices the, the way they are? Because there, there's more and more risk, whether it's supply chain disruption, whether it's them taking care of their employees so that supply doesn't get disrupted, whether it's um, different impacts, tariffs, stuff like that. There, there, it's it's more and more of a of a of a business decision. And again, the customer is asking for more and more transparency in that in that in that whole supply chain. And and at the end of the day, I think one thing that's important to note from Orvis is that um, the last thing we're going to do is come on a, a, a podcast or speak to our customers saying we're perfect and we're very far from it. Um, I think one thing I really value is something that's been set by previous generations and is really part of the culture, which is around willingness to be honest and transparent and curious. And, and I think that's something that we want to invite our customers into as well, which is, hey, here's where we are in our journey. This is why we're authentically committed to it. This is why we've invested time and energy into it. And here's where we're going. Um, and, and I think for me, that's the biggest difference between companies that are trying to trying to check the box on the surface to tell people that they're that they're interested in in a sustainable and socially right supply chain and those that are really that are authentically committed to it is how how, how transparent are they willing to be? How, how do they engage on the subject? Yeah, the only thing I'd add there is um it all does start with the product, with the customer and ties back to what Orvis can do uniquely for our customer. And it, it gets back to design with quality, design with comfort, design with performance in the outdoors. Because um, we have to have that right and the supply chain to do that and, and opening up that partnership with our with our suppliers is is another really important factor that's interesting so within many outdoor communities there's this classic tension between on the one hand having it be very good to have more people get outdoors and enjoy access to nature and on the other hand uh the fact that in some cases that can impose burdens on the environment that um might worsen it for future generations and so i'm wondering how you two might reconcile that classic outdoor tension. Um, I'd really appreciate your thoughts there. 
Yeah, I mean it's a it's a it's a tension in the in in a lot of outdoor industries. I would say it's it's especially the case when you're talking about sports like fly fishing or wing shooting, where where the 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 success there's there is a very very linear, linear and direct relationship between the success that participants can have and the success of the sports and the health of the natural resource, right? And so, again, it's one thing that I heard. I've heard my father, my grandfather, my uncle say over the years, which is, yes, we want to bring more people into the sport, but we have to be just as committed to protecting, conserving these natural resources because um, because they're fragile. And without them, we have nothing, whether it's us as a business or us as as people and what, what we like to do, what our passions are. And so it's a it's a it's a tricky balance, but it's a really, really important one. And I think one of the biggest things we're looking at. Well, first off, we, we need to, as a company, we, we need to be willing to show up for the natural resource, not just for us, but for the future generations that we want to be able to engage with these activities. Um, that's really important for us to sort of, um, for, like, like Bill was saying, for us to really sort of walk the talk and, and not just talk the talk. The other side of it, which is really interesting with a sport like fly fishing is, um, how do you make it more accessible to a wider range of people and also to celebrate a, a more diverse, more diverse species, if you will, right? When it's, when it's so focused on a singular species and a singular type of fishery, mm. you can't just keep bringing people and dump them in on a specific river fishing a specific way for a specific type of fish. And so, um, you know, where, where fly fishing used to be all about trout in freshwater or tarpon in saltwater, um, highlighting and celebrating other species. For example, we, you know, recently publishing a book, the Orvis guide to fly fishing for carp, which was unheard of, you know, <laughs> 15 years ago, but this is a species that can make urban angling more accessible. It's a, it's a way to bring people into, into other fisheries that they didn't think about before and, and, and celebrate other species that they hadn't thought of before. And that's just one example, but there are many, I think there fly fishing at the end of the day is if you have a fly rod and there's a body of water nearby and there's something swimming in it, it's, it's fly fishing and really letting that kind of become an evolution of the sport and celebrating people that are, that are evolving the sport in really interesting ways. You know, the only other one you might want to add is the sporting clays, uh, for the hunting side. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, hunting's an even, sometimes an even trickier balance because it's so, a wild bird population regardless of the species it, it habitat is so critical mm -hmm. um and allowing people to participate and 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 make it more accessible and lower the barriers while also looking after those those species and the habitat um, but to bill's point one thing we've seen a lot of success recently is is um what we call our, our shooting grounds which are these sporting clay courses i mean it's uh, think of it as as uh golf but but with a shotgun going after these these clay pigeons that are being thrown in different ways and and you know the instruction and the safety and, and helping people so that it's it's less intimidating and people feel very safe doing it but but opening up this this new way to engage with some of the aspects of the sport that that is that is also sort of sustainable when you think about the natural resource yeah that's all great Bill, I think you mentioned that uh, the Perkins family, and I'm assuming you as well, have spent a lot of time in the out of doors, really living the Orvis brand. And I was wondering if you could both describe your 
relationship with the outdoors and with the activities that you enjoy doing there? Well, I grew up uh, loving the outdoors, but not in fly fishing or hunting. My, my dad didn't do that. And uh, we did a lot of camping. We did a lot of hiking. We did a lot of biking. We did a lot of spin fishing. Um, and it wasn't until our third daughter uh, left the nest and my wife and I looked at each other and said, what the heck are we going to do together now? Because we've dedicated pretty much most of our married life to um, raising those kids and schlepping them around to different sports. And we tried golf and that didn't work. Uh, and then got involved with fly fishing and just um, my wife's first outing, she was really successful with a big brown trout and that was set for, for the rest of it. Um, and we've since then um, really enjoyed this, the social part of putting trips together and going with friends or meeting new people at different places, um, different lodges. You know. um, and on the, the wing shooting side, um, really still not uh, a hunter that much, but love to watch our dog work. And so we go out for to. To, to watch her, her do her things just on instinct. Yeah, my story has some similarities, but it's indifferent in some obvious ways. I mean, I was very lucky in the way that I was I was born into it, right? And and so didn't really even know what I was going to be a part of because it was what, what what I was a part of because it was that's it was kind of what I knew of life, right? I I didn't I remember later on in my childhood learning that family vacations people would go and and lie on a beach and and relax and come back rested i mean most of most of my most of my family vacations were waking up at dawn and either fishing or following dogs and i'd come back to school a week later completely exhausted um but but you know like i said i i certainly took some of that for granted just because you know you do when you're when you're a kid and i think later in life really understanding how lucky i was to kind of have have that exposure at a young age. Um, and, and it, it's shaped, it shaped me personally and also professionally. I, I became a, I, I was a fly fishing guide throughout my summers in college and then was a fly fishing bird hunting guide for seven, eight years after college, um, where I did it for selfish reasons, just because I, that outdoor office was something that I was, was really seeking and I knew I was going to love, but I also got a chance to spend every single day with um, with our core customer and, and understanding them better and, and, and why fishing and, and hunting was a part of, of, of their lives. Um, and so it's been, it, it's, it's, it's the whole thing's been really interesting and now bring it full circle. I have a seven-year-old daughter and a four-year-old son and my wife who, who I've known for, um, for well, almost almost twenty years now, if you count the years when we were dating, and, and how watching how the sports have entered into their lives in their own unique ways, and wanting to help support that, but also letting it be theirs at the same time, and and it's just it, it's reinforced for me a really really simple lesson that I knew I that that I now it's very clear to me I learned this at a young age, um, but it's this idea of you know when you're exposed to something in a certain way, you you become fascinated with it and you become curious with it. So that's fly fishing 
or wing shooting. It was a way to just be exposed to the natural world and the, and the layers and depth to the wonder of the natural world. And you become fascinated by it and then you become curious. And when you become curious, it's you, you start to fall in love with it. And then once you fall in love with it, you want to protect it. And it's it's really fun sort of sitting back and whether it's our customers, whether it's um, whether it's what my wife and see, what my wife and I see in our, our kids, um, or whether it's kind of Bill or anybody you meet, you, it's it's this amazing community that forms around kind of this 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 under this curiosity and this journey and this love and ultimately this this desire to make sure it's there for for future generations to be able to benefit from in the same way. That's very interesting. So as a final question. Um, with all of that said, what advice do each of you have for young people who are hoping to make a positive difference in the world? Well, that's a good question. That's a big one. Yeah, it's a big one. You saved the big one for last. You want to you go first or second? Well, I'll, I'll go. Just the top of mind is follow your passion, follow your curiosity, as Simon was saying. But um, you don't, this isn't something that you you do if you don't really believe in it and love it and get inspired by it. Um, so, and I think the other part of it is try some different things. It's, it, some of these sports are more difficult to get into than others and you just have to have a little patience and keep working at it. I'm, it's a journey, it's a lifetime journey. Still learning every day that I'm out there and that's what makes it so fun. So. Uh, yeah, I think just follow your passion and do do what do what brings you happiness and fun. And I think that's super important these days, where we got pressures coming at us from different things and locked up at home and doing that. So having fun is what, whether it's in nature or in in your job is is a it's something that you should should look for and i would i would underscore that in the way that um it, it, if you can have a personal connection with what you do it makes it that much easier and that that can be a privilege right that can be easier in some cases and harder in other cases but but if if you can find that personal connection to what you do you're, you're you can't help yourself but to think but to think long term i mean my my grandfather was very committed to this idea of combining business with something he was incredibly passionate about. And in doing so, he wanted to, when he found that he, he was obviously interested in growing the business, but he was also really interested in this, in the success of this thing that, that he, that he loved so much. And, and that, that activity being around and that natural resource being around for generations. Um, and I think the one other thing I would add is that we're at a, we're at a unique point right now in, in, in our history, which is the increasing demand by customers for companies to, I'll say, do the right thing in air quotes, but but have purpose is the most it's ever been, at least in my lifetime. And with that comes much more incentive and motivation for companies to show up and deliver on that. So no matter who you're working for, there is going to be something that aligns with your company's brand beliefs or core values where your company can do something in a certain way that that is with purpose and adds value to to 
something greater than just that company's bottom line. In turn, if it's done right, it, it can help feed the company's bottom line. But there's there's such great demand right now that um, whatever you're doing, you can find those connections. And and not only is it the right thing to do, but today in today's world, it's it's smart business. And so it's a it's a really it's a really cool time. It's it's a very unique and and a really exciting time for for companies and their employees or their associates to really kind of lean lean into this purpose and into into purpose led business. That's a great answer, Simon, Bill. Thank you so much for joining us today, and to our listeners, thank you so much for tuning in. podcast is a production of the Nelson A. Rockefeller Center for Public Policy and the Social Sciences. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers and not of the Rockefeller Center. This episode was produced and edited by Laura Hemlock. I hope you'll join us for our next episode. If you want more information, you can find us at rockefeller.dartmouth.edu.